Welcome to Grace River Church, located in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Our mission is to see every generation experience the transforming power of God in every area of their lives. We hope you enjoy today's message. The message this morning, and we know we've been building on this for weeks, but the message this morning is the cry of the oppressed. We talked last week about what opposition could look like. You're never going to do anything in life without some opposition. The opposition will be there. But I'm talking this morning about the cry of the oppressed. <clears throat> I've got to set this back up. I know the video did this briefly, but you know, if, if we're honest with ourselves sometimes, and you don't have to raise your hands on this, but do you just sort of have a great experience maybe at church and you hear something that resonates with you but what happens by Wednesday? Come on, get real. Are, are you really still thinking about that? Are you really still focused on, God, what are you doing in my life from last Sunday? Chances are, you're human. And we'll see that again this morning. But what I also want you to do is, is every time you hear something, and I'm, that's why I'm being repetitive with this, just, just jot it down, because I want you to see a process that, that really, if you walk this through, God does have a plan for your life. So let me just walk through this again very quickly. First of all, there's the kind of person that God uses. What kind of person is that? The kind of person that God has their whole heart. When God has your whole heart, he wants to prove himself through you. Then we talked about a holy discontent, what it meant to, to find that thing that God has laid on your heart or that thing you hear about or situations that you're walking through that you know need. A move of God but then the faith to step into it it drove him to his knees in prayer we need to be a praying people he stepped out in faith he went before the king and and asked the need and and see that that was the other thing too he had a plan but the king had the resources we didn't really go on on that trip that Sunday morning but the king gave him everything he needed for the task even gave him passage he gave him the rights and, and wrote it down on letterhead so if he came against opposition he could just throw out the paper I have a right to be here we, we see that not only did he have that faith but he had commitment uh, Josh and Nick spoke wonderfully the last several Sundays and uh, Josh talked about the commitment that you have to have because there's gonna be some lonely dark hours and how many of you understand that when you step out to attempt something for God, it might even feel good. Sometimes that first step is a little scary, amen? But how many of you understand that even if the first step is exciting, occasionally you get to what you think God has called you, and your first response is, what? This isn't what I thought it was going to be. This is not at all what I thought it was going to be. That's why when Nehemiah got back to Jerusalem, the first thing he did was go by himself to check out the realities of what he was facing. And he did. There were some lonely. He went through some places. He couldn't even take his horse. Now, that, that leads us to last week. And we talked about that opposition. And if last week was external, uh, the, the external opposition, we know that it comes from the outside and People don't agree with this. To today, the cry of the oppressed is more of internal opposition.
opposition. You see, last week we talked about this opposition that comes to us and we're doing the work of God. We're, doing, we're, we're building our family. We're building what God has called us to do. We're, we're being what God has called us to do. And, and the enemy comes against us and they mock us. The enemy comes against us and they make fun or whatever that looks like in your scenario. But then it takes it a step further and I didn't go into great detail on this last week but just want to touch on it quickly. But then there was a threat of a physical attack. We're going to kill them. We don't want them. Now you and I have a hard time getting our mind around that but just do some traveling. Do some traveling around the world and try to preach the gospel. There are places where Physically, you being attacked is very real. Now, I say that because they did not stop the work on the wall. They just backed each other up. Uh, some carried a spear, some carried a sword, while the others were able to work. They, they, they had each other's back, as we wrapped that up last week. They, they were able to protect things from taking place. When there was an attack coming, they were able to warn each other. So they just kept working on the wall. But, but then that leads us to the passage this morning because when we see that, <laughs> that internal, external opposition kicks in, chapter 4, if it dealt with unity, because oppression and discouragement and, and the church being attacked, in most cases, brings the church together. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament church, you know, we always think about the church growth in the New Testament because it was a mighty move of God and, and it certainly was and the church grew daily but do you know how the church really grew? Attacks. When, when Rome decided that it was their fault that there was so much dissension and they began to attack them and the church was dispersed they didn't disperse and change their religious beliefs they dispersed and kept preaching Jesus until they they literally became the Roman world. Now I say that because we sometimes say, Lord, please don't let anyone attack us. External attack is what will make you grow. External attack is what makes you strong. Diane and I just started a workout program. It's a very strong term for what we're doing right now. Um, I'm not going to embarrass anyone, but we've been doing some like interval stuff, and and they they said, okay, we're doing this for 40 seconds, and I'm like, oh, that shouldn't be hard. And then we're going to rest for 20 seconds. I didn't realize it takes me 40 seconds to get down on the floor. <laughs> I spent 20 seconds trying to catch my breath. I had no idea what I was getting into. Now when I say that, that's that's external pressure. That's external circumstances. Is that going to make me stronger if I keep it up? Yes. Okay. Don't pray for God to stop all the external opposition. It's the cry of the oppressed. What is that? Let's read this together, starting at verse 1, chapter 5. Because if chapter 4 was about unity, chapter 5 is disunity. Starting at verse 1. It said, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. 
There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh, as the flesh of our brothers, our children are their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not our power to help them. For the men who are over our fields, the men are over our fields and our vineyards. Now, I, I want to break this down for a few minutes this morning because when I say that, that cry of oppression, that chapter 5 deals with disunity. It's, it's, we need to understand that we are our greatest enemy. I know Satan is the enemy of the church, and we like to think of everything being our enemy, but let me encourage you this morning. This is encouragement. You're your worst enemy. You are your worst enemy. And some of you are good at it. And see, we, we can be our greatest problem. Why? Because this passage tells us that there was a great cry. You see, for approximately 30 days now, just picture this in your mind. For approximately 30 days, Nehemiah has showed up. And after just a few days, even with some opposition, he has gathered the men of the city, and he has told them, here's why I'm here. God has sent me. There's a plan. We're rebuilding this wall. And again, the, the powerful need for the wall was for defense. It was for protection. It wasn't just to have a nice fence in the backyard. It was to keep the enemy from getting into your home. It was to keep the enemy from attacking. It was to keep the enemy, the external enemies, from coming in and taking all you have and destroying. So the, the men of the city knew this was important. So for 30 days, the men have been working on the wall. Now the people are, are really the men and the wives show up in this passage. And the first thing that happens is they're saying, we need to eat. There's nothing more scary than a mom who has decided, no, here's what we're doing. I'm not even going to start calling all the names that we call them, but Mama Bear works well. If Mama's not happy, nobody's happy. All the wives show up, literally saying, the men are not here. Our sons are not here. They've been working with you. We're hungry. Nobody's been bringing in the harvest. Nobody's been bringing in the food. The second complaint was, we've had to mortgage our land and our homes to even survive, to even be here under this oppression. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but just listen very quickly. Ezra, when you read the book of Ezra, you'll know that Ezra brought Zerubbabel. He came back to build the temple. That was 100 years before Nehemiah showed up. So now for 100 years, they've now built the temple, but life's sort of gone on without doing what they needed to do. So when you've lived a life for a couple of generations of not doing the wrong thing, how many understand things can get really messed up? I see those hands. Things can get messed up. Things can get out of whack. What seems normal to us today, two generations ago, would have been laughed at. 
but it's normalcy now. Because when things get out of whack, somebody's got to come in and decide, no, we're rebuilding things. There's going to be opposition. But the cry now from within is saying, well, you, you don't understand. We're in bondage. We've had to mortgage our homes. We've had to mortgage our land just to survive. We've borrowed money at high interest just to pay taxes to the king because Babylon and, and other nations have, have taxed us to even survive. And it's caused us to have to put our children into slavery, sell our children into something that we, we never would have done intentionally. But now even our children are enslaved to this. Now, everybody take a deep breath because I'm not preaching about money today. But it would fit well. I mean, just think about the last few generations and how they've spent money and the indebtedness left to us to somehow figure out how to pay. Now, before I go on, I, I want to remind you that Nehemiah wasn't a preacher. He was a cupbearer. He was an assistant to the governor. He was an assistant to the king. He, he was a, a butler in the White House, if you will. And he gets permission to go back home and make a difference. I, I want you to just grasp this morning that this isn't about becoming a preacher. It's not about becoming a, a, a full-time minister somewhere. It's about being what God has called you to be right where you are and rebuilding the walls around your life right where you are. Because, and we'll see this in a moment, if we're honest with ourselves, life gets a little out of whack. Life gets a little bit fuzzy when we don't follow God. So what, what happens here? Well, they're not being taken care of. The, the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, are not being taken care of. By who? Their own brothers. You see, what, what we see here, it's their own brothers who have mortgaged their homes. Oh, you're, you're hurting? Well, I'll give you a loan. Here's the interest. You see, that, wasn't a, that was a biblical no-no. Well, pastor, that's not how we do business today. Exactly. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, they, they had to mortgage their homes. And then they, they, they just looked at it. Their brothers looked at it as a way. You know, they're struggling. Here's a way. You know, we, we, it's a win-win. You survive and I make money. You, you get by. You scrape by. And I make a killing. You, you get to eat, but I get all your property. Now, how did the Bible deal with these kind of things? Well, if you go back to Leviticus, even Leviticus chapter 22, 23, I believe through chapter 25, God talks about something, this silly subject called Sabbath. Sabbath rest. Now, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands on this one because in our Western culture, we have crucified this command. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, keep it sacred, keep it separate unto God. What does that mean? It's almost like it's, it's, it's a principle you can apply to just about anything. It's about trusting God. Trusting God that when he says, you know what? Stop one day a week and rest. But Lord, you don't know how important I am. Yeah, I know. Stop and rest. But Lord, I've got so much on my plate. Stop. Because it's not about if you can, it's do you trust him. Same, listen, same thing with your tithe. 
I'm, I'm just making this application because it's not about money. It's about you. Pastor, I just can't, I can't pay my tithes right now. No, you just can't trust him right now. I don't have enough money. You don't have enough trust. Now listen, I'm not trying to get your money. If you're not a member here, pay it where you go. And this is, I'm, not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to get your money. It's your trust that God looks for. Why? Who, who will God use? The person who he has their whole He, he wants to show off through you, but he's got to have your whole heart, not part-time. Now, now, what am I saying? He, he's looking at the Sabbath and saying, I want you to take one day a week and just rest. Rest your animals, rest your mind, rest your body. But then, every seven years, rest the whole year. Don't get too excited. Rest, rest all the land. There's principles for this. Rest all the land, rest all the cattle, rest everything. You rest. You know what that, that was? And we call them sabbaticals now, but you can't imagine this. Some of you can't imagine this because it's hard to even put yourself in a position where you can do this. But if you tried, you've been told this before, when you go on vacation, at least go two weeks. And we're thinking, who can do that? Exactly. You should do that, though. Why? Because you'll be a better father, you'll be a better uh, a wife, you'll be a better son, a better daughter, a better employee. Why? Because it takes at least seven days to realize you're on vacation. Because the first three or four days, you're like, oh, I forgot, I forgot my notebook, I forgot my computer. Oh, my God, what am I going to do without my computer? I need my phone. We've got to drive back. We've got to fly back and get my phone. And we... And then we, we or, or, or either we take it with us and we spend the first three days going through all those emails trying to respond. I just, two more responses and I can relax. You, then then you, don't, you don't relax all week. Now listen, I'm preaching to myself, but I promise I'm almost finished. I'm starting to feel a little bit bad right now. Here's what happens. After about a week, you start to realize that the world is still spinning without you. Somehow the, the office is still running. Somehow, if you left your kids with somebody, the kids seem happier. Um, people, the, the world's gone on. And then you really start to relax. But listen, for, for most of us, quite honestly, that's so foreign. I remember several years ago, Diane and I took a sabbatical. And we're, we're doing another one next year. We took a sabbatical, and when I was first talking to Dr. Hill, who was over a vanguard that we walked with, he said, John, take about 12 weeks. And I'm like, with all due respect, you're out of your mind. I can't be gone for 12 weeks. I don't even know if I'll be living in 12 weeks. I, 12 weeks is a long time. He said, believe me, if, if you've not built the right leadership at the church, it's not going to last anyway. And if it dies, it needs to. So we were gone. We didn't have to go far. We just didn't have to. We couldn't come here. <laughs> and so we, it took us about two weeks just, I mean, I was going through withdrawals for about two weeks 
you know, I've got, I've got to go to church. I've got, I've got to do something. There's something I've got to do. When all along, see, what was happening, it wasn't external issues. Internal. Stuff that, that if you don't deal with. Can I ask a quick question? When you read through chapter 5, you'll notice one specific thing that's, that's different from chapter 4. In chapter 4, with all the external challenges, they kept building the wall. In chapter 5, when the internal challenges started taking place, all the construction stops. You see, when you're dealing with stuff on the inside, you think things are going on, but they're not. When, when, you're, when you're going through the, that's what happens. When you're going through the motions, that's what you're really doing. You're just going through the motions. Because there's stuff on the inside, and nobody else may even know about it. That's okay. Nobody else may even know what you're wrestling with. But see, when, you, when you're wrestling and it goes unresolved, it goes unchecked, it goes undealt with, the reality is you really don't take any steps forward. You might be burning energy like crazy, but you're not moving anywhere. The wall was not being built. But just back to the Sabbath real quick. On the 50th year, that's called the year of Jubilee, guess what happened? All debts were forgiven. If you had bought a piece of property, if, if I had bought a piece of property from Emily and Fell 49 years ago, on the year of Jubilee, they would get it back. It's theirs. Now, in, in our modern culture, we'd be like, mm, I'm suing you. I've got the title. The title is in my name. No, why, why is that significant? Because when things are reciprocal like that, What's happening is, yes, I'm using the land, and I'm having a great harvest. I'm, I'm experiencing great success, but it's not for me to store up and me to have. I'm blessing other people. So by the time you get to the year of Jubilee, I've been a blessing, but now you get to be blessed again because everything that you own comes back to you. And then we just keep living that out. That doesn't really sound fair. Well, think about the book of Ruth. We all, we, what we see in the book of Ruth is that they were told and it was understood that when you have a harvest, when you reap your harvest, don't, don't get so far out on the edge that you're taking everything from the field. Leave some stuff. Leave some stuff on the edge. Why? Because there's hurting people around. And that way, while they're walking down the road, they can go over and get some corn or get some grain and pick it up and We've not made them a, the poster child of people who need stuff in the community. We're brothers and sisters helping each other in the body of Christ. That's what I love about grace groups. Pastor Corey and I, or they were talking about last night in flow, yesterday in flow. <coughs> the, the wonderful thing about grace groups is all the groups are meeting outside the, the church on Sunday and they're loving each other and relationships are built. And the reason I love it is people get moved and don't call me. Because they'll be sitting around in a grace group and it'll be, you know, I, I got to move next Thursday. I'm free. Let's do it, man. You see, without grace groups, people are just calling around trying to find somebody. But when you live in community, you have community. We have each other. Now, I say that because what's, what's going on here was no community. Over a period of time, they had been so blessed that they had ended up in bondage through Babylon, and, and then they were able to start leaving. 
Well, just being able to leave was a blessing within itself, but they got back, rebuilt the temple over time, built houses, but there's something about it's innate in all of us. When God starts doing something in our life and things seem to be going good, we put God right back on the back burner because we think it's us. Making any sense? We think it's about us. And what happens is it becomes a cycle. We forget about God, we end up in bondage. And now we're good about, I'm picking on you a little bit, that's why when they told me that we were going to appreciate our pastors today, I was like, man, I wish I had my Pastor Appreciation Day message ready. Because here's how we live our lives sometimes. God, please get me out of debt. Lord, I, I didn't mean to buy all that stuff. I thought those eight credit cards were free. Please, please get me out of debt. Now, we want to get out of debt without disciplining ourselves. Okay? So, listen, the bondage is not your debt. The bondage is the time it takes for you to learn how to deal with your debt. See, we think God deliver me, and he said, I'm trying. Lord, just hit, Lord, I need a lottery. If, Lord, God, if you can just hit me that lottery number, I'll, I'll pay off everything, triple tithe, Lord. And then I'll pay off all my debts, and I'll know how to function. No. If God gave you $100,000 tomorrow supernaturally, you would be $101,000 in debt by the end of the month. And you know I'm right. Because we function without transformation. Now, I'm saying that not to pick on you, because Diane, my wife, and I have walked through all kind of learning processes. That's the bondage. You say, why, why are you calling that bondage? Because you want to be out of that. You think you want to just be out of what you think the enemy is. You're your greatest enemy. You being willing to sit down and learn how to do finances. You being willing to learn how to sit down and work with people. You say, well, I liked it when it sounded more spiritual. I like it when God comes in and, and everybody's changed. He could do that. He really could. But then you don't grow. You just change. And we all know what, what we're talking about, right? So the, the body's not taking care of itself. Let me, let me move quickly, because if, if we are our greatest enemy, and I just want you to hear this, because when you, when you realize that there's a cycle that we find ourselves in, that there are things that we have to be developed over, that there are things God wants to do with us. The Bible says that when Nehemiah heard that they were being mistreated like this from their own brothers, from their own Jewish community, am I making sense? The Bible says that he was angry. He was angry. Why was he angry? If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, when he had first heard that the walls were not built, he fell down and he immediately prayed. And part of his prayer was, God, I know that when, when you gave your word to Moses and brought your people out, you gave your law to Moses, that tells me right there that he knew exactly what we should be doing. And see, when you know what should be happening and, and years passed and you just expect that people should know also, and a hundred years pass, and you show up, and you get them excited about building the wall, and then you find out that the house of God, because judgment always starts in the house of God, that the house of God 
is treating each other so wrong, he literally is standing here going, what? We're the ones that are supposed to be loving each other. How is the world ever going to believe that we believe what we say we believe if we don't believe it? I can't say that again, so I hope you got that on the first time. How are we supposed to believe what we say we believe if we can't even walk it out? He, he's upset. Now, I, I love what he does, and let me just read this to you. Uh, if it's not on the PowerPoint, Michael, I apologize, but Nehemiah chapter 5, starting at verse 6, he said, he was very angry when he heard these words again. And he said, I brought charges against the council. In the very first verse, or the verse right before that, he said he, he took counsel with himself. Now, what does that mean? That means he didn't run in there mad. Anybody ever find something out and get mad and react? There's a difference between reacting and responding, isn't there? <clears throat> I know I've shared this story before. Several years ago, uh, my son and I, my, my wife Diane dropped Matthew and, all, and I off at one shopping plaza and she drove across the street to another shopping plaza because we were going to get our hair cut. We walked into the place that cuts our hair and, and she said, oh, we're so sorry. There's just no way. Whoa. I get my hair cut here all the time. I had, a, I had an appointment. What's going on here? Well, no, 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 no. We're going to get this straight. I got mad and I spoke my mind all one second of it well I walked out and we were walking because then I was also mad because I knew now we had to walk a quarter mile to find out, find out where we parked because Diane had the car so while we're, we're walking and I'm telling my son this, how upset I am and this is not right he said hey I got an idea dad why don't you go back and invite her to church You're walking home, Jack. You're, you're on your own. Why? I think all of us can relate to a time where we got angry and said something stupid. Where we got angry and moved too quickly. Where instead of stepping back, parents, and counting to ten, and then responding to a situation, or if you're with a spouse and somebody says something and and you feel it rising up. I mean, you know, it reminds me of the married couple celebrated their 50th year anniversary. And I mean, they both looked incredible. They were stunning. And someone asked the man, how, how have you done it? 50 years? You look incredible. He said, my wife and I decided that if we were ever going to fight, I would take a long walk. I've been walking for 50 years. It's being willing to step back and not let your anger make the decision. The Bible really says he was angry. And listen, angry at who? His own people. The Bible, the Bible does not say one time when you go back and read when the external opposition took place. It never said he really got ticked off at Sam Ballad. He wanted to take Toby behind the shed and just, ne no, never one time. He kept working. Because external opposition just wants you to stop working. It wants you to stop moving toward the opportunity God has. 
But, but internal, if you don't fix it, you'll stop yourself. So he steps back. He, he, he deals with himself. But then he said, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. Now, now here's what this means. He had a city meeting. He had a church meeting. He got everybody together. All right. As far as we are able, we brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell them to your own brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent. They could not say a word. So I said, the thing that you're going to, that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are leading them, lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting interest. In other words, let, let us get away from us making something out of this from our own brothers and sisters. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, percentages of money, grain, wine, oil, all that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, you ready? We will. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I love verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen. Praise the Lord. So be it. Let it be done. And God get the glory. Why? A couple things very quickly and I'm closing. With grace and boldness, he approaches his own people and says, You are wrong. Can I tell you the thing that the church has stopped doing? <clears throat> Holding each other accountable. Well, pastor, the Bible says, judge not, lest ye be judged. Read a little further. It doesn't say not to judge. It just says get the telephone pole out of your eye before you talk to somebody about the speck in theirs. You see, before... It doesn't say don't sit down with people and hold them accountable. I want to go to a church where you can just be you. I want to go to a church where we are redeemed. I want to, we have to be a church where lives are transformed, where lives are changed. And we can't, I don't change you. You don't change the person sitting next to you. It can only be the power of the Holy Spirit. But can I tell you how the Holy Spirit typically works? Josh, can I see you for a few minutes privately? Listen, man. You gotta stop buying so many cars. <laughs> I mean, he knows I'm playing, because I know he loves cars. And, and but if if he comes walking in with five Camaros every time we turn around, something's gonna be an idol if he's not careful. Now I'm not saying become the morality police. But if you know somebody is not living like they should be living, here's what happens. You either don't deal with the sin in your own life and you go try to deal with them and they laugh at you. Now, we're talking about the body of Christ now. We're not talking about going out and trying to win the world for Jesus. If you can't love each other, they're not going to listen anyway. I'm talking about us holding each other accountable. But see, when I've dealt with the stuff in my life, I can look you dead in the eye and say, Here's what should be happening, brother. 
God says this. Here's what needs to be taking place in our life. Here's how we should be walking this out. And you don't have to preach. You don't have to scream. You don't have to holler. You don't have to embarrass. The people just stood there and didn't say a word. You know why? Truth and love has a tendency to shut you up. Because you know they're not there to attack you. Have you ever felt like David? David, at a period in his life, a man after God's own heart, at a period in his life, was in the, the wrong place at the wrong time, and he thought it was the right place at the right time initially. And he looked over and saw Bathsheba. He desired her. You know the story. He ended up having an affair with her, ended up having her husband killed. And so we're not talking about a, a one-night stand. We're, we're talking about a massive sin, has her husband killed, and, and tries to go on with life, but, but Nathan comes in and tells him the story about this man who had one little lamb. And a man who had everything came in. And David just stopped him midway. Bring him in here. I want to meet him. You. You're who we're talking about. Now when that takes place, you just stand there. See, it's not about attacking. It's not about feeling like you have some authority that you can lord over people. It's loving people so much that, number one, you're willing to deal with your own stuff. Because when you deal with your stuff, now you can lovingly help others deal with theirs. Because what, what, what do we see taking place here? He stands before them and he says, guys, this is wrong. It's wrong what we're doing. And then he goes on to the last part there, and I, I'm closing with this. Emily, if you'll please come. He, he has personal sacrifice. He shows them this isn't about just coming in we're working, and I'm coming over here telling you what to do. He said, listen, I've been here for 12 years. I've been in and out here for 12 years, and I, I haven't taken one raise. Now, he's not telling them this to impress them. He's letting them know what I'm asking you to do, I'm doing myself. I've not taken one raise. I've given it away. All the benefit packages that come with being the governor, Never, never one time look at him. Um, he, he goes on and lists out the different foods he could have. Always, nope, went with whatever was on the buffet. Fed hundreds of men at my own expense because I didn't want someone else to feel the, the brunt. Even when they had special wine delivered once a week, I would never take advantage of it because I, I knew men were suffering in other areas. I knew families were at need in other areas. I was making sure I was living an example. Why? Because the end of the chapter says this, not because I wanted to impress people. He says basically, God, you're the one that called me to this, so I want to make sure you're good with this. I want to impress you, God, because there's going to be external pressure and there's going to be internal pressure. God, I want to deal with the internal stuff because when it's all said and done, it's about giving him glory. See, if we could ever understand whether it's your job, your family, it's not about giving him glory one day a week on Sunday. It's about every avenue of your life shining for him.
How does that happen? Well, we already know that it can only happen through Jesus Christ. There's no way you and I could ever earn the right to be saved. It's got to happen through Jesus Christ. But what I have discovered, and I, I just want to read this. Let's all stand together. I, I want to read this to you. Sort of a tough way to end the service, to be honest with you. So standing might be a good thing. You can walk right out in a minute. It's Galatians chapter 5. Starting at verse 13. He said, for you were all were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit and you shall not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not led by the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. All these, I warn you, as I've warned you before, these that do those such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, that's the key. It's not those who follow the rules. It's those who belong to Christ, listen, have been crucified with him. They've been crucified with him. And when you are crucified with Christ, Paul goes on to say, it is not you that lives, but it is he that lives within you. Now, now listen, here's how I want us to close today. Because I believe every person here understands what I'm talking about when, when I say that, that you are your biggest challenge. I am my biggest challenge. I also believe that we don't have to be very intelligent when the Holy Spirit starts knocking on the door of your heart that you already know what he's dealing with in your life. I didn't read that list to challenge anyone. What Paul is saying is, you'll be shocked at what your flesh will drive you to do when you are not led and crucified in Christ. Don't ever be surprised when even those in the church will, will, will do things or take advantage or, or be in situations. Don't, don't stand back and say, what? In the church? We're perfect. No. We're sinners saved by grace. But need to be reminded on a regular basis I am crucified with Christ I am crucified with Christ I want to be led by the Spirit uh, one more second I know you're standing see sometimes I equate being crucified with Christ and believe me I wrestle with this all the time because I have to die to my desires I don't care if it's in a conversation with a total stranger, in a conversation with someone here from the church, in a conversation with a stu uh, student, or in a conversation with my wonderful wife. Sometimes I feel like, man, all I do is die. This stinks, Lord. 
All I do is die. And then I get mad at somebody because they don't have to die. I'm the one that's got to die. And we talked about this in, in a class that I teach the other day. You know, it's funny because if you're a sacrifice and you're supposed to be dead, be dead. I think we try to be sacrifices with one eye open. I think we try to be sacrifices almost because we're still wanting something for us. So what, is, what does dying daily mean? Does it mean becoming a doormat? No. That's not what it means, actually. Dying daily means it's no longer I that's moving. It's no longer I that's trying to produce fruit, but it is Christ in me, the hope of glory. It is the Holy Spirit in me that bears the fruit. All I have to do is constantly be listening to His Holy Spirit. I wonder what God is dealing with us about. Next week, we're going to look at a, a powerful fact that the work continued. But sometimes the work in our lives that we get frustrated about, we want things to continue, but we wonder why we're at a standstill. You know what that standstill is, don't you? That's, that's the inner cry of oppression. Something in you, God is trying to work out and you can't seem to move forward. Nothing around you seems to be happening because it's not about things happening around you. It's about something happening in you. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, I, I just pray right now that, Lord, in these next few moments as we close out this service, that we do not close out the moving of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that as you just speak gently to each individual here, Father, it may be something that they've been wrestling with. Lord, there may be individuals here who have moved through incredible times of struggle and, and they're, they're living in victory and in a very exciting, powerful time. Lord, I pray that today what they glean from this service is don't ever forget who God is. Keep pursuing Him. Keep pursuing Jesus. Stay hungry for Jesus. But those of us, Lord, this morning who are struggling, who are walking through difficult times, Lord, I pray this morning that we not be embarrassed because, God, you're speaking to the body of Christ this morning. That if they're wrestling with something, it's because you are moving in their heart. You are wanting them to come home. You are wanting them to allow you to do a work in them. So, Father, I pray right now Lord, in just a moment as we sing this song, I pray that we just surrender. Let this song be a, a, a voice of testimony as we pray and worship you of what you are doing in our life. We surrender it to you right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, save us from our sins. Save us from ourselves. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you want to hear more, you can find our entire archive on our website at graceriverva.com. Also, if this message has touched you in any way, we would love to connect with you. Do this by filling out a connection card at graceriverva.com connect. From all of us at Grace River Church, have a blessed day.